Okay, Genesis. Um, I know we are taking our time in Genesis, but that's okay. Um, I don't have a problem with that because we're thinking about something big. We're in Genesis 13 and 14 today. Uh, but as we're studying uh, Genesis, we're thinking about God's plan for the world. So we're thinking about how God is saving the world, which should be exciting. You know, God's plan for the world, how God is going to fix everything. But if you're like me, it is easy to get so focused on what is going on in your life uh, that you can lose sight of the big thing that God is, is doing. And so we have this tendency to shrink our lives down to the size of our lives and become very short-sighted as a result. And that's part of what I like about Genesis because Genesis forces us to step back and think about the great big thing God is doing in this world and how he's doing it and what our response needs to be. And it begins, you remember, with a glimpse of how things are supposed to be in Genesis 1 and 2. God gives us a picture of this kingdom, this perfect kingdom where he is going to rule uh, and we are going to experience his presence and we are going to exercise authority as his uh, representatives, which of course is showing us that God is really, really good and really, really generous. And then Genesis gives us an explanation of why it's not like that right now. And there's different ways of trying to explain Genesis 3 and what happens, but essentially man won't trust God's wisdom and God's goodness. And man basically says, I want to be God and comes up with his own plan. And we saw the consequences of that as we looked at Genesis 1 through 11, consequences on our relationship with God. That's why we're exiled from his presence, right? His special presence right now. And we have this longing and groaning. We're living in a world that's cursed. Uh, we see the consequences on ourselves. We're full of sin continually, unable to be our own savior. And we see the consequences on our relationships with one another in Genesis 1 through 11. You've got brother against brother, nation against nation. And so by the time we get to Genesis 12, we're asking, what is God going to do? Um, and um, we are looking these weeks at Genesis 12 through 25 because this is a key part of the answer to that question. God chooses Abram, and he makes him some big promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. These are some of the most important promises in the Bible. Uh, they provide a, a grid, really, for understanding the rest of the Pentateuch. And what is it exactly that God promises Abram? Three things, seed, land, and blessing. So if I call you at 3 a.m. in the morning and I ask you, what did God promise Abram? You should be able to answer, seed, land, blessing, SLB. I don't know what that could stand for, but seed, land, and blessing. And each of these are really important, starting with seed. And why is seed important? because it links back to that Genesis 3.15 promise, right, about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, uh, who is the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, which is like the driving promise of Scripture. And so he's identifying Abram and his family with the seed. And we see here that one of the things God says he's going to do with Abram and his seed is multiply it. He's going to produce a nation. And this idea of a nation is important as we read the rest of the Old Testament, because the rest of the Old Testament from this point on is primarily about this nation. And uh, so we have to ask, why does God spend so much time talking about one nation 
throughout the Old Testament, and this is part of the answer. You have to remember this as you read about Israel because God is producing this nation for the purpose of fixing the problems in the nations. So these, there's nation versus nations. Nation, all these nations at the end of Genesis 11 are uh, fleeing the presence of God, trying to establish their own kingdom without God, and God says, okay, here's how I'm going to fix that problem. I'm going to solve the problems in the nations by raising up a nation. And so this seed of Abram is ultimately going to deal with the serpent problem. It's going to deal uh, with the land problem. There's a curse on the land, and part of why God is making this nation is to give them a land, and we're going to see that there's a sense in which he is going to, he's he's planning to um, give the world a glimpse of Eden in this land. He's going to deal with the, the problem of the presence. God wants to dwell with his people, and he's going to deal with the conflict problem between brothers and between nations. So this is huge. This is huge what God's doing in Genesis 12 or promising and what he promises to do through uh, Israel. And as we watch God do this, we are learning how God saves and what God wants from his people. So we don't just learn about God and salvation, but we learn about what God wants from us. And the Abraham stories are foundational for the rest of the Bible, but us for us as believers. These are our these are kind of, these are our stories that give us our values. So every culture really has stories that they raise their children on, in a sense, to give them their, their values. Um, sadly, now our culture is doing that through like Disney and, and all kinds of crazy stuff, but those stories are really powerful. Uh, they shape, it, it, stories, the stories you're told shape uh, what you look for in a spouse, <laughs> actually. Um, they shape what you think manliness is. They shape, you, they shape what you think it means to be a woman. They shape uh, the stories that you hear and watch. They shape all kinds of things about what you think it means to be an American, what you think it means to be a human. Stories are really, really powerful. And these stories are true. And they are stories that are designed to give us our values, to help us understand God, salvation, ourselves, what's beautiful, what is not beautiful, what is important, what is not important. And these particular stories about Abram are ones that are going to play out throughout the rest of the Bible. The things we're learning here are, are, are things that are going to be expanded on and explained as we continue to read, uh, read the scripture, especially with Abraham as we get into the New Testament. Abram's probably mentioned in the New Testament more than he is the old, actually, outside of the book of Genesis. So Abram is very, very important for understanding Israel, but also for understanding what it means to be a Christian and how the Christian life is supposed to work. And one of the big things we're learning at the beginning of the Bible is that God is the one who's going to do the saving. So this is one of the foundational values for us as a Christian, is that we mess everything up when we try to take salvation into our hands. The way salvation works is God's the one who's going to do the saving, and we do the, we're the ones who do the trusting. 
And you can see that even in the way he sets this story up, where the Abram story is located here in Genesis 12, because you remember it's in contrast to Genesis 1 through 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel, where man's trying to make a name for himself and pierce into the presence of God through their own efforts, and God's like, no, I am going to do this. And then, remember, he starts with this impossible situation because Sarah's barren, and that's huge because this is about a seed. And so this is like the one person on the planet who can't fulfill the promise. And God chooses them so he can demonstrate, I did this. I'm the one who did this. There's no other explanation for this. And basically, he does it by bringing life where there's death. She has a, a dead womb, in a sense. And so he has to resurrect that womb so the seed promise can continue. And as we look at Abram and Sarah, we're going to see that Abram and Sarah and Israel's job from the beginning is to trust God that he can keep his promise, that he is good, and that he will do it just as he said he would. And so Genesis 12 through 22 is really about what God is doing, how God saves, and will Abram learn to trust him? And so there's even uh, what they call an inclusio in Genesis 12 through 22 that helps you see that. In Genesis 12, God says, go to Abram. In Genesis 22, God says, go to Abram. And those are, it's an unusual way that he says it in the Hebrew. And those are the only two places that he says it like that. And so Genesis 12, of course, is go forth from your, your, this land to the land that I will show you. And Abram does, but remember, he like falters and fails, and it's a little bit confusing as to whether he really will trust God. And Genesis 22 is kind of the climax, right? God says, go again, but it's after all these years where God's made all these promises, and now God says, basically, I, I, will you trust me even when it looks almost as if I'm evil, <laughs> as if I'm breaking all my promises? And it's a, a great test of faith. It's the climax of the Abram story. And, of course, Abram does trust God. He's come to learn to trust that God is good and God will keep his promises. And that's what uh, Moses wants us to learn as we read the Abram stories as well. And so from a practical perspective, if we're looking at these stories to ask what does God want from us, I think that's going to be one of the main lessons we learn over and over again. God wants us to believe him. And so we want practical sermons often, and um, calling on people to believe God's promises maybe doesn't always seem practical, but it is very practical. One of the sins underneath all our other sins is the failure to believe that God's as good as he says he is and that he will keep his promises. So if you think about many of the sins you commit in life, if you look at the sin underneath that sin, so there's the sin of lying, for example, and then there's a sin underneath the sin of lying, or there's a sin of fear, and then there's the sin underneath the sin of fear. And so often, if you look at the sin underneath the sin of lying or fear, what you see is actually it's a sin of refusing to believe that God is who he says he is and that he's as good as he says he is and that his promises are true. So, for example, why do people lie? People lie because they're trying to be their own savior, usually, um, or they're trying to get out of the consequence. They're either trying to get righteousness for themselves through lying, 
or they're trying to avoid the consequences of their action through lying. So that's trying to be your own savior. So the sin underneath the sin of lying is refusing to believe that God is really a good savior, that he, uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that his approval matters most, or that um, I have the righteousness of Christ, so why would I need to deceive you to look better in your eyes when I already know God uh, has provided that kind of salvation for me? And so uh, here, as we look at these Abram stories, we're learning to trust God and why God is a trustworthy, even when life is, is difficult. We uh, need to believe. This is how salvation works in the Bible. He is saving by faith from the beginning so that he will get all the glory. And so if you want a demonstration of just how blind humans are, how you can read the Bible and think that salvation works by you and God working together is, is an illustration of it. Because from the very beginning, the warp and woof of the Bible is God saves, we believe. And um, part of the reason for that is because if God made salvation by anything else other than faith, we would find a way to steal the glory for ourselves. We are amazing at trying to make it about us. But if it's by faith, we can't steal the glory for ourselves. Um, because what faith does basically is it point the glory back to God. It's kind of like I heard someone describe it like this, how faith, uh, it's really impossible to, to boast in your own faith. He said, um, imagine being trapped in a burning building and you are uh, basically paralyzed. You're kind of semi-conscious, but you're, you're dying. And uh, maybe Isaiah runs back into the building. Isaiah Mackler runs back into the building um, through the smoke to save you lying there. He, he, he throws you on his back because you can't, you can't move. He, he um, gets it, makes his way through the, through the building, uh, coughing and and tripping and stumbling and being burned and he pulls you out of the building and for some reason the, the press is there, uh, all the newspapers are there and uh, they have this microphone and uh, they bring the microphone to you and you say, aren't I awesome that I trusted the person who dragged me out? He came in and I was willing to trust him, I was willing to trust Isaiah that he could rescue me from the building. So. Aren't I amazing? And uh, everyone would say, no, you are delusional. Obviously, you, it's not about you trusting Isaiah. It's about what Isaiah did to rescue you. And God designed faith to work like that. Faith, we are saved by what God did. And uh, we honor him by trusting him. God wants faith. And yet, it was difficult at first for Abram. And you remember, we looked at Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to Abram. And he's this nobody, really. And God chooses him and tells him at age 75 that he's going to bless him with descendants and land and through Abram and these descendants in this land, he's going to bless the entire world. And then what happens next? There's this problem because life gets difficult for Abram. And the question is, will he trust God? God says, go to the land that I'll show you. Then in Genesis 12, Abram gets there and God says, this is the land. And then next thing. Genesis 12, 10, there's a famine. And so the question is, will, God, will Abram trust God and stay in the land? 
And the answer is no, he won't. <laughs> he goes to Egypt and we're like, no, don't go to Egypt. Whatever you do, don't go to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, he doesn't trust God. He tries to make a plan to protect himself, but God remains faithful to Abram. Though I have to say, and my wife told me last week, Josh, make sure you say this, Abram and the world still experience the consequences from his failure to trust God because in Egypt, he picks up a, a, a slave, a female servant named Hagar, who uh, actually, uh, Abram's sin with Hagar becomes the root of many of the political problems we have in the world today. And uh, even Joshua and Julie Lee, as they're in Malaysia, uh, experience some of the consequences of Abram's sin. And so God is faithful to his promises. Uh, Abram experiences the consequences for sure, and we do too, but God takes care of Abram, and we're in chapter 13, which uh, brings us back really to where we started. Abram, at the beginning of chapter 13, is uh, coming back from, um, from Egypt, and he's rich. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2, or Moses says. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as to the Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, from Bethel to Ai, to the place where he made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And so it's like he's back. And the question is, has he learned his lesson to trust God? Because he didn't trust God the first time there was a struggle, specifically with the promise of the land or the seed, really. And we're wondering what's going to happen now. And in chapter 13, we're going to look at whether Abram is going to trust God about his promise of the land. And so that's the focus here. There's these three promises, land, seed, blessing. And specifically here, we're looking at will Abram trust God about the promise of the land and, and, and whether or not God really wants to give him the land of Canaan which feels a little bit removed from us. God giving Abram Canaan and God giving Israel the land of Canaan is a big part of the Old Testament, actually. And one of the major promises of the Pentateuch, God's gift of the land to the people in this land in particular, and it's important, actually, because it has something to do with Eden. So um, with the land of Canaan, it's almost like God is is taking us back to Eden. He's a, he wants to establish a capital on the planet where he's gonna dwell and bless the nations. And so um, as we get into the book of Exodus, we're really gonna see that we look back to creation, what happened at creation with Adam is really gonna help us understand the tabernacle and what God wants to do in, in the land. And so we're gonna be thinking about this land Big picture. God has a, a plan to use this piece of land. And of course, remember, we're talking about a real place in this world. We're talking about Canaan. And I'm emphasizing this because I think it's easy for us to overlook uh, the importance of place or land uh, as we think about the Bible. And so it's, it's really important to understand that the Bible is not a fairy tale that could happen anywhere. Um, it's recording history and it happened in a certain place. And this place, Canaan, matters. God chose this place. God chose this particular spot. In a few years, we want to take a trip to Israel. 
And that's part of why. It's a real place, and it's going to help us as we study the Bible because the, these things that we read about in the Bible didn't just happen like in, a, uh, in the air, like we're reading Aesop's fables or something. They happened in a real location, and that location matters. I'm actually reading a book on uh, modern culture now and why it is the way it is, and it's talking about the influence of the West on the world, and it's really profound. Um, and he's like, he's going back in history, and one of the questions he's asking in the book is, why over the course of history did certain cultures develop such sophisticated civilizations and have such influence over the rest of the world and others didn't? And one of the answers that he gives that I had never thought about before is geography. And he works at proving that. And it's really, really interesting. Um, we sometimes think it's only ideas. But actually, a lot of it has to do with geography, even the shape of a continent, um, certainly climate. And whether you agree with him or not, you can easily see how land has a pretty profound influence on us. Uh, this One of his uh, points is just like wildlife. So there are, I guess, 13 big animals that can be um, domesticated. And uh, five of them are really important. And those five really are only indigenous or whatever the right word is for that. They're only, they're, they're only located in a very small portion of the world. And so you can understand how much harder it is to farm if your main wildlife is like lions and um, zebra or as, a, as um, compared to your main, you have cows and sheep and things like that. And so obviously places that had cows and sheep and things like that could, um, had it much easier, could make money more quickly, and as a result, people could congregate in cities and, and focus on education and not just survival. Uh, but the point is, whether I can explain <laughs> that as well as he did, the point is geography matters. Like, if you meet people that live in a, um, the top of a mountain, a little village, in the top of a mountain, they are going to be different than people who live by the sea. Because if you live in a little village in the top of a mountain, it's gonna be hard for people to get to you. You're not gonna have uh, much contact with the outside world. If you live by the sea, you're probably gonna have people coming in and out all the time. If you um, live in a, the city versus you grew up in the country, it has an impact on you. If, you're, if you um, live in a place that's warm versus a place that's freezing, it's, you can tell. If I put up pictures here of people in certain outfits, you're going to have good guesses of where they live. And that's all been influenced actually by uh, the land in which they live. And so uh, when we read the Bible uh, and read about land, land actually matters. Uh, Canaan matters. And since God makes such a big deal out of this particular place, we could look at it a little and ask why. Genesis 13 is about will God trust, will Abram trust, excuse me, will Abram trust God about the land? And I'm just saying that sometimes we overlook the importance of the land and uh, it matters. This, this little spot, Canaan, matters. And we might ask, why does it matter so much? Why did God pick this particular place? And um, 
it would be nice if we go there someday and, and get an idea why. But for now, Canaan is a pretty small reg region in the world, though it is in a part of the world called the Fertile Crescent, or at least was called the Fertile Crescent, which was one of the places on the planet that was easiest to develop a civilization from. And uh, um, it, it had all the things you needed climate-wise, uh, location-wise, geography-wise, that uh, you would have needed to, d to advance really quickly. Um, but on the Fertile Crescent, Canaan's not quite in the prime spot. So if you compare Canaan with Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia, it's not in the prime spot for being a world-dominating place. So I had a class on the land of Israel, and one of the things the professor said about Canaan was that it was an impossible land to go out and to not dominate the entire world from. It was not a world-dominating place like Egypt or Assyria, and she gave reasons. So you have to ask, why would God choose this place for the nation that's supposed to impact the entire world? Well, its location does matter because it was in between places that could build em empires. And uh, Syria, Egypt, and that made it central to trade. So people are going through Israel all the time from the most important empires in the world. And so while it might not have been a world-dominating place, Canaan was a world-influencing place. The world would be going through Canaan all the time. And as we study the rest of the Pentateuch and learn about Israel, we're going to see why that's so important. This is part of the plan. God wanted to use Israel as like a preview, a glimpse of what it's like when God is king to showcase to the world his glory. And so he located them on a spot in the world where everybody would be going through and, and seeing what it was like when God was king, if they would just obey. And in chapter 13, back to Genesis, we're just at the beginning of all this. And we're starting to think about the land and this land, Canaan. And one question we might be asking is really, is this land that important? And uh, because we're living all these years later, we might not be asking that. But if I'm the group of people Moses is writing to, and I have to cross the Jordan and go to battle with the Canaanites to, to get that land, I kind of want to know, does it, Moses, is this really, are you sure this is the place? Like, how big a deal is this to God? And you know, we're also wondering, just because of Abram and his failure, whether or not he's going to believe it. And so at the beginning of chapter 13, we're tracing Abram's journey back from Egypt to where he started, and it's almost like we hit reset. And if, if we didn't see that, it's clear by Moses saying that he went to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. You see that in verse 3. Um, and uh, he's where he began, and he's calling on the name of the Lord there, which um, connects him back to what Seth was doing, actually, in Genesis uh, so there's a connection with the seed. But there's some separation between him and Lot, even in verse uh, 1, the way it's written. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, with all they had, and Lot with him into the Negev. And so it seems like Lot is with him, but he's not with him. And then where's Lot when Abram's worshiping? It says Abram called on the name of the Lord, which is big. Um, but where's Lot? And I don't want to make too much out of the fact it doesn't mention Lot, but it does make you wonder. We have some questions. There seems to be a problem with Lot. 
And what happens? They're both rich, so rich that Moses says the land could not support both of them. Look at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land, which, of course, is a fulfillment of God's promise to bless Abram because he has so much here. He's gone from a no-name to becoming this force. And yet, it's kind of interesting because Abram and Lot are having a conflict, and it says the land can't support both of them. And yet, right after that, it says there are also these two other nations there. And so it makes you wonder if the problem's really the land not being able to support them or if the problem's something else, right? Because if it could support these two other groups, why couldn't it support both Abram and Lot? But whatever's going on, Lot's herdsmen and Abram's are having strife, which is another illustration of the problem in Genesis, people fighting one another, Cain versus Abel, nation versus nation. And so Abram comes up with a solution. He says in verse 9, separate and choose which way you want to go. And he gives Lot options. He says, go to the left or to the right. And Lot chooses neither, which is important too. Um, one author explains, Crucial to understanding this story is the fact that the Hebrews oriented themselves with reference to the east, not the north. Thus, we need to envision the conversation between Abram and Lot within this framework. When Abram says to Lot, is not the whole land before you, let's part company, he's referring to the land of Canaan. Then Abram says, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. For the Hebrew, left is north, right is south. In short, Abram is suggesting they divide the land of Canaan between them. But what happens instead? Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. And so again, this is him not listening to Abram and moving away from the land of Canaan. So Lot is looking in a different direction, and it looks to him like Eden, like the land of Egypt. So in a sense, this is like a test. For Lot. But while it looks prosperous, it's not a good place spiritually because Moses, Moses hints at that. He says at the end of verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's like a warning sign. This is not going to be a good choice. And actually, uh, it's funny because this area where Sodom and Gomorrah are is near the Dead Sea, which is like this really, you definitely wouldn't describe that as the Garden of Eden now. Um, and there's a reason for that. But at this point, it looks better to him to live outside the promised land. But it's not going to end up better. And yet Lot is so dominated by what he sees, this looks like the garden of the Lord, that he doesn't listen to Abram, which is a warning. What Lot's doing here is a warning. Though I'm not sure about what Abram's doing. Some people see it as an act of faith. And uh, so he didn't believe God about the land in the previous chapter, and he took matters into his hand, own hands. But now it's like he's putting the whole thing in God's hands. I'll trust that you can take care of me, which might be right. I, I can see that. But whether Abram's right, everything about what Lot it does is wrong. Because uh, first of all, Lot should have deferred to Abram. He was the younger brother. <laughs> so that's what younger people should have done in that culture, um, for sure. But he doesn't. And beyond that, he should have at least listened to Abram. But he doesn't. Instead of the options Abram gave him, he chooses the Jordan Valley, and he journeys east. And when you read east in the Bible, in this portion of the Bible, you're like, 
no. Dun, 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 dun. I like that the scary music comes on in the background when you read East because East is away from the presence of God. And on top of that, what did God say? God gave this huge blessing to Abram and tied the blessing of the world to Abram. And so if Lot believed God at this point, he should have wanted to be as near to Abram as possible. But he doesn't. And what happens? Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were very wicked, great sinners against the Lord. What happens is that Lot leaves Abram moves further and further away from God. And so it's like we've got these two brothers and Lot's choosing the path of Cain. He's siding with God's enemies. And we'll see the consequences of that. But God then takes the opportunity to make clear to Abram that Canaan is the land he's given him and it will be enough. You remember uh, Lot and Abram were fighting over the land, but God says, no, you're the seed, this is your land, and, I'm, and it's gonna provide for you big time. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And you remember uh, when Lot made his choice, it says he lifted up his eyes and made his choice. Now God says, Abram, you lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I'll give to you and your offspring forever. And so he's like reaffirming the promise about the land and extending it. Um, and so Lot, Abram's childless, Lot has moved away, and God's like, Abram, it's going to be okay. You're going to have offspring, that word's the word seed, and they're going to live here, and there are going to be a lot of them. And so go take a walk and be happy, because I'm going to give this all to you. And you know, if we stop and compare Abram and Lot, which is what is sort of how Genesis works, if you think about it, you're supposed to compare. You've got Cain and Abel. You've got uh, the Tower of Babel and Abram. You've got Jacob and Esau. If you compare and contrast Abram and Lot and think about what this is teaching us, we could almost see this as two different ways of living in this world. And Lot's way is to go by his eyes, um, which is uh, sort of Esau's way later as well, too, to go by his eyes. What do I see? What looks desirable to me? And yet, what's the other option of living in this world? It's to go by your ears. <laughs> you can go by your eyes or you can go by your ears. And to go by your ears is to trust what God says in spite of what you see. And that's what God is calling Abram to do. Trust my plan. Go, don't go by your eyes. Go by your ears. <laughs> I'm going to give you this land. And, of course, that's what Moses is calling Israel to do. This is what I promise you. This is what I'll do for you. This is the land I'm going to give you. And it's going to be enough to do what I've called you to do. Will you trust me? Will you throw yourself on the generosity of God? Am I really as good as I say I am? And that's, that's the question as we look at the story of Abram. Will Abram throw himself on the generosity of God? And uh, Abram is beginning to learn to throw himself on the generosity of God. The first story he didn't, this story does. God says, verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so verse 18, Abram moved his tent, and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, which is a mountain, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And it's funny here, because it says oaks of Mamre, um, and we've seen talk of oaks before. Oaks is obviously a tree, but back in 12.6, you have the oak of Moré, which means vision, the oak of vision. And if you go through the story of Abram, maybe you can do that sometime for fun, and just circle all the trees in the story of Abram. 
um, you're going to find a lot of trees. There are a lot of trees in the story of Abram. And around the mention of both of these trees here, there's God showing up, there's God talking to Abram, and there's Abram building an altar and worshiping the Lord, and there's a mountain. Mountain, tree, altar, presence of God. And if you want to dive deeper into that, um, there's a podcast uh, actually by a guy named Tim Mackey where he talks about trees in Genesis. And it's pretty fascinating, whether you agree with it or not, um, which I, I don't agree with everything, but it does give you some things to think about. There's something special going on with trees actually all the way back to uh, the Garden of Eden and that tree all the way to uh, um, the sacrifice of Isaac and the trees there all the way probably to, uh, I would imagine, Moses and the, the tree, the burning tree, burning bush. But now we're in uh, chapter 14, and I can just go through this real, real quickly. I usually try to end by eight, so I have five minutes, but God's given Abram a second chance to trust him about the land after his failure, and he reaffirmed his promise about the seed, and yet we have a lot of questions about Abram, about Lot, because he's headed in the wrong direction, and we're a little hopeless for Lot, actually, after chapter 13, and it gets worse for him in 14. But there's also hope, because in chapter 14, what we get is a glimpse of how God is going to save the nations through Abram. God's saying he's going to use Abram's descendants to reverse the curse and rescue the nations and bring blessing, and we're like, how is he going to do that and can he do that? And so we get a preview in chapter 14. Because Lot's choice gets him in trouble. There's this great battle, epic battle of these kings in verses 1 through 12. There's uh, four kings, verses 5. And the four kings defeat the five. And they take Lot because he was living in Sodom. So Sodom wasn't great for Lot. And what does Abram do? Verse 13, he hears about it. And he leads forth his trained men. He's got 318 uh, men trained men, trained soldiers who were all born in his uh, household. And so Abram is like a city already, actually. Even though he has no children of his own, he's got 318 men who were born in his house, um, which means uh, there must be more than that because these children would have had parents. So I don't know how many people there are in Abram's household, but it seems like there must have been at least a 1,000, which means he's a little like a king already, actually. And that's part of how this story's portraying him and he's a great king because he pursues the four kings who won the battle and he defeats them they're the four kings who defeated the five and abram this one king goes out and defeats all of them and gets lot back verse 16 and he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to hobah north of damascus then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman lot with his possessions and the women and the people and after he wins, there are these couple of kings that come out to meet him, the king of Sodom, the king of Salem. And the king of Salem, Melchizedek, blesses Abram, and Abram gives him a tenth of everything, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this is really mysterious. Um, because where is Melchizedek coming from? And it tells you that there's stuff happening that uh, is not revealed to us. There's more going on in these days than just we get here. God has revealed what he thinks we need to know. 
but this man's a priest, and he's a royal priest, so he's a king who's a priest, which is actually what Adam was supposed to be, a king who was a priest. And he's from Salem, which is Jerusalem, and he knows God, and he brings something to fellowship with Abram, and he blesses Abram, and he glorifies God, and Abram responds by tithing, and there's a lot we might not understand yet until we get to Psalm 110 or Hebrews. But here, we're seeing Abram worshiping God through a royal priest from Jerusalem long before Leviticus or David, which probably creates something, some big expectations of something big happening in Jerusalem. Which it's like the Bible's giving us a little preview of coming attractions, a royal priest from Jerusalem who Abram worships Yahweh, who enables and helps Abram to worship Yahweh. Um, that's like creating an expectation that God's going to fulfill thousands of years later. And this king stands, it, it's amazing just to remember like the kind of um, canvas God is working with. Like he, he's, he's got like thousands of years canvas that he's working in history with. I mean thousands and thousands, but like he's setting up with Melchizedek something that He's doing something with Melchizedek here that is designed to help us understand Jesus, who's coming thousands of years later. Um, so whenever you start to like question what God's doing in your life, remember you're talking to someone who is he, he he's what he does now in your in your life, our life, whatever, what he does now in the world, he's that's connected to what he's going to do like five thousand years from now. <laughs> so. So it's, it, you're just working with someone who operates on a much bigger planning uh, template than, than, than we do. <laughs> um, and it should create some kind of humility. But this king here stands in contrast to the king of Sodom because the king of Sodom doesn't come with anything. And he says, give me the persons, you can take the goods. And Abram says no, which is shocking. Like imagine, you just went to war, you have all this stuff. The king says, you can have the stuff. It's a lot of stuff. But Abram says, no, and why does he do it? Verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, which takes faith, right? And it shows Abram's learning, and it tells us why Abram exists. He exists to glorify God, to make it clear that God's at work in this world. And you're supposed to look at Abram and say, God did that. He's the one who saves. Nobody else can take credit for it. And he's going to make it clear to everyone through the way he uses Israel and ultimately Jesus that he solved the problems of the world, not through our efforts, not with any help from anyone else, but through him and him alone doing what's impossible for us. And our job, like Abram, is to believe it, <laughs> to believe it and to glorify God by living lives that demonstrate we trust that he is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do, and we don't have to take matters into our own hands. We can, we can trust him. And we're going to see God continuing to teach Abram that and what's going to happen next in, in chapter 15.